This morning, I want to give you just a little bit of a spiritual journey that I have been on all of my life. Unlike many of you, I was born into a Seventh-day Adventist home. I can't remember never being a Seventh-day Adventist. I'm guessing the first time I ever went to a Seventh-day Adventist church, I think I was four or five days old. And I can right now only remember one time in all those years when I wasn't in church on Sabbath morning. And that's because I had polio and I was sick in the hospital. Um, So I don't know what it's like to become a Seventh-day Adventist. I can never remember what it was like to find out that Saturday is the seventh day of the commandment. I've always believed that. I cannot remember what it was like when I found out that people were not going to burn forever and ever in hell like many churches teach. I've never believed that. And so the joy of finding out that the lost aren't going to burn forever has never been mine. I have always believed that when the dead die, they go to sleep. And those who go to sleep in Jesus, the next thing they will know is that Jesus is here. I've never had to learn different than that. I've never had to unlearn that you go straight to heaven because I've always believed that. Uh, I can't remember a time in my life when I never paid tithe. My parents taught me that when I was a little boy. It's always been that way. Uh, I never had to give up smoking because I never started. I never had the struggle of giving up drinking because I've never tasted alcohol in my life. I came very close to it once. Uh, I was out selling stuff door to door, and it was spring, and the snow was melting in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I was walking down, I think I was 12, and I saw a beer can that hadn't been crushed yet. And I thought, I'm going to crush that. But what I didn't know is that it had never been opened. It's still full of beer. And when I stomped on it, it exploded all over me. And I thought, if I want to know what beer tastes like, all I have to do is stick my tongue out and wipe off my lips. But I thought, no, I'm a Seventh Adventist. We don't taste beer, so I never have tasted it. But I know it smells awful. I can't understand how... Anyway, I've never had to go through the transition that many of you have had in coming from one one way of life, one lifestyle to another. It's always been mine. And so... Unlike many of you, I have never known the joy of finding out this truth. It's just always been there. I've always taken it for granted. However, as I grew up, I was just I was a Seventh-day Adventist by, by birth, by culture, by training, by, by everything. But as I began to get in my teenage years, I began to realize that Adventist that I was... And to people on the outside, I like good. I knew there was something wrong in me because I knew those texts in the Bible that talk about what you do with your thoughts. And I knew I was struggling with mine and I and something was wrong. And uh, I've always outwardly tried to be a good Adventist. When I was in academy, uh, I was elected pastor of my class, my junior year and my senior year. Uh, They had a boys club. I was elected pastor of the boys club. I was assigned one year to be the head of the Missionary Volunteer Society in the academy. The next year, they asked me to be the Sabbath school leader in the academy. They, how many know what Medical Cadet Corps is? Only a few of you. And bless your heart, you're about my age. 
Well, there was a time when they had what's called the draft. And you didn't wait to join the military. When they needed you, they called you. And they called Seventh-day Adventists. But Seventh-day Adventists went in as medics. We don't want to learn to kill people. And uh, they're Sabbath keepers. So in our schools, they had a program in which they would teach us as much as we could possibly learn about the military before we got there. So that when you got drafted, you already knew how to salute. You already know how to wear your military clothes. You already knew first aid. You knew how to march. And since you're going to be a little bit different, you're going to be trained with a rifle and you're going to keep in the Sabbath, at least they would respect you because you knew everything else. I was appointed chaplain of the Medical Cadet Corps when I was 17, 18 years old in academy. So to outward show people around me, my friends elected me pastor this, pastor that. My teachers wanted me to do this and that. When I was a junior, I started giving Bible studies and preaching. I've been giving Bible studies and preaching ever since. And so outwardly, I looked like a good religious person. But I found out that it's possible to be very religious and have a reputation of being a religious person and still not know Jesus. Has anybody else found that out besides me? And my experience has uh, been reflected in the sermons that I preach. And by the time I was a junior in college, oh, I was also culporting because when I was seven years old, I was trying to light a firecracker, and I didn't have a match. So I got a piece of newspaper, and I set the, the firecracker out on the front porch, and I went back in the kitchen, turned the stove on, stuck that piece of newspaper in the flame, and tried to hurry out so I could set off my... And before I got out to the firecracker, the thing had burned down, and I got a terrible burn on my thumb. I had a, a blister that stuck up almost an inch, and uh, when I thought about what the Bible teaches about all sin and sinners to be burned up, all I had was a burn on my thumb. I thought, boy, I, I want to go to heaven. Because the last thing I wanted to do was wind up, and even though I didn't believe you'd burn forever and ever, I thought two seconds is long enough. And so I was motivated to be good. And uh, after when I finished academy, uh, just my senior year, a fellow came from the publishing department of the conference recruiting students to be call porters. And I thought, if you want to earn points, be a call porter, because that's the hardest job I ever did. Right, Paul? And, uh, and I got to college, and I started taking the theology class. And by the time that I was a junior, I was so discouraged with myself spiritually. I thought, I'm going to make a miserable preacher. And I was, as I've already said, done everything right, but I still didn't know Jesus. And during week of prayer in October of 1964, a man by the name of Wilbur Alexander, who was a teacher at the seminary, came to Union College and held what we called a week of prayer. He'd preach twice a day, morning, evening, we'd go to week of prayer. And I'll never forget the sermon that he preached on Tuesday of that week. It was called Wall-to-Wall Fig Leaves. And it was a text was from the book of Genesis that talked about when Adam and Eve recognized that they had sinned and that they were naked, they sewed together fig leaves. And then he started saying, we do the same thing when we recognize our physical nakedness. And all of a sudden I realized that my call pouring, as good as it is, and it's a good thing to do, and I'm sure people who bought books from me Got a blessing out of them. 
But I realized that I was trying to earn my own way. I was trying to clothe myself with, with human righteousness. And he says, you may be studying for the ministry and, and sewing together fig leaves. And he listed all the things that I was doing, and he just nailed me to the wall. And after he finished that sermon, he didn't make a call, which you have noticed. I don't make a lot of calls. There's a reason for that, because he didn't make a call after that sermon. But that's one of the most profound sermons I've ever heard. He just ended with prayer, and we left. And I walked out of the chapel, went over to the student lounge, because I didn't have a, a class the next period. But boy, was my mind being worked on by the Holy Spirit. And I went into the student lounge, and I sat down in one of the overstuffed chairs. And while I was sitting there thinking about what he said, a girl walked into the student lounge. I found out later she had birth defects that made her the most undateable girl, at least physically speaking, on the campus. I found out later she was a very nice person, and she was going to college so she could learn how to help people who had the same physical defect that she did. But the first thing that I thought when she walked in is, I hope she doesn't sit anywhere near me. And I realize now that God had arranged that, and she didn't sit by me, but the Holy Spirit says, Bob Stoffer, don't you know that if that girl were the only one who had ever sinned, I love her so much, I would have come down and died for that girl that you think is ugly. And I could understand that because the Bible says God looks, what man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And I didn't have any idea what her heart was like. But when, when the Holy Spirit said that, don't you know, I love that girl so much I'd have died for her. And then God used her physical unattractiveness to speak to me. And he said, don't you know, I love you that much too. Because the Holy Spirit he began convicting me, even though on the outside I was doing everything right. I looked good on the outside spiritually. I knew that on the inside I was ugly and I was lost. And I experienced what Peter experienced when he cursed and swore and denied that he knew the Lord. Then he looked up and he saw the look on Jesus' face and says, Peter, I've always known you're this way. And I, I loved you then and I love you now. And he went out. He repented. He became a converted man that day. Because you remember before that, Jesus said to him, when you are converted, remember that? And even though Peter was been following Jesus... He was following Jesus because he thought Jesus is the Messiah and he's going to set up the kingdom and I might be the vice president or whatever they called it back then. He was following Jesus, which is a good thing. Even to follow Jesus for the wrong motives, it's better to follow Jesus for the wrong motives than not to follow Jesus at all, right? But when he found out how weak he was and then he saw the look on Jesus' face and found out Jesus loves me even as I'm weak, even if I'm cussing and swearing, denying I knew his name. He still loves me. He was converted. That happened to me that day. And uh, I can remember the very next moment, the bell rang. It was time for me to go to class. I stood up and so helped me. It didn't feel like my feet were touching the floor. And as I walked to the door of the student lounge to go out, it seemed like the angels were there and they were opening the door ahead of me. I've read in Steps to Christ about that. It says, when you become a partaker of Christ's pardoning love, love springs up in the heart. Duty becomes a delight. Sacrifice becomes a pleasure. It says, there may not be an ecstasy of feeling, but in my case there was. It says, there may not be, but there will be a peaceful abiding trust. Now, everyone who has ever experienced that wants to live in that experience forever, right? And yet, just like when uh, 
Peter, James, and John went up on the mountain with Jesus. And while they were up there, uh, Moses and Elijah, or Enoch, Elijah appeared to them. And they said, let's build some booths up here and just stay here. They want to stay on the mountaintop. That's where I wanted to stay too. But I found out that uh, Jesus didn't let them stay on the mountaintop. And when they came down on the mountain, there was trouble. And I came off the mountains, they're in trouble. And I spent the next 10, 15 years wanting that experience that I had felt that day. And sometimes I would taste it and sometimes I wouldn't. And I sometimes get so discouraged, I thought, maybe I should become a Pentecostal. They seem to have it all the time. And the Lord spoke to me about that and says, no, that's not what... In fact, let me tell you what he One day, I was driving down the road, and I had been having Bible studies with a really nice family. He was a builder in town. He was the kind of builder that when the bank wanted to build a new bank, they would call him. Now, do you know what kind of builder he was? He was and he was attending our church. But on Sunday, he was going to the Pentecostal church, and the Pentecostal church got him, and we didn't. I was brokenhearted. And... Uh, I was thinking, maybe they've got it, and we don't. And the Lord spoke to me as I was driving down the highway, discouraged, and he said, Bob Stauffer, when you found me, were you looking for a good experience? And I thought, no, I guess I wasn't. What, when you found me, what was it that caused you to be found? I found out the truth. All right, the Holy Spirit said, you just keep seeking the truth. And when I want you to feel good, you'll feel good. And when it'll be for your best good not to feel good, you'll not feel good. But don't go around seeking for experience. You just keep seeking the truth. That was a good lesson for me to learn, wasn't it? Because uh, sometimes God gives us a good day, but when he really wants to teach us something, he'll let us have a bad day. How many have ever discovered that? Well, anyway, uh, what I have been preaching to you the last 10 months... Most of it I didn't know then, but I, I, did, I did know that there was joy in serving Jesus, and I was serving him for a different reason. But the text that I have often showed you, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13, I invite you to go there real quick, unless you have it memorized, which if you don't have it memorized, I'm really mad at you, because you used to have it memorized by now. Anyway, I feel like a failure if you don't know it. But you know that text. It says, I've written these things to you who believe on his name so you can know you have eternal life that you might believe on the name of the Son of God. And that's a strange text because it starts out saying, I'm writing this to you who believe on his name. And then it says, so you can know you have eternal life. And then it says, so you can believe on the name of the Son of God. Why does it start out saying, I'm writing this to you who know him. And then when it finishes, it says, so you can know him. Is it possible to know some things about Jesus but not know everything? Absolutely. And it appears to me from this text that it's possible to know Jesus but not know you have eternal life, but you are not going to know the fullness about Jesus until you know you have eternal life. And I didn't, all this time I didn't know. I knew him, but I didn't know I had eternal life. In fact, I didn't think that you could. I didn't even think that you should. And I had read what many people have read from the writings of Ellen White where she says it's a dangerous thing. And you've heard me quote that. She says it's, it's, a, it's dangerous to take the position that many take in saying I'm saved. And that's all I knew about it and I thought it's dangerous and you don't do it. You've heard me quote that before. Anyway, I, I was my junior year and I found out that I wasn't saved by my goods works. I was saved by God's mercy and I was very grateful because I thought... If I have to be saved by my good works, the only one that's going to make it is my dog. Because all the rest of us will be lost. 
Anyway, I uh, finished my junior year. I was taking a class called Righteousness of Faith. I loved it. Senior year, got engaged to the lady that's now my wife. We went to seminary. But I remember during my junior year, uh, on Sabbath afternoon, we were out of nursing home singing to the old people. And while we were there singing, I don't know if it was our singing or what, but one of the ladies started having a heart attack. And uh, since I was the senior theology student, I was, she says, I'm, I think I'm dying and I don't know if I'm saved. And since I was the senior theology student there, they pushed me to her bedside. Now, I could have told her about the 2300 days and the state of the dead and a whole bunch of stuff and about the Sabbath. But when someone is right there wanting to know how to have salvation, I didn't know what to say. And I was so frustrated with myself. I thought, if there's anything that a preacher ought to be able to tell people is how to find salvation, and I didn't. I thought, I've got to give them 27 Bible studies before they can know they have salvation. I thought, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch only had one Bible study. Now he'd been studying the Bible before, obviously. And I remember I went on to seminary and uh, found out a lot of good things, graduated, went out in the ministry. In the first church I pastored, there was a couple there in that church, and uh, their mother was a member of the church, and the mother says, I think they're ready for Bible study. So I went over and, sure enough, started giving them Bible studies. And I went over there one evening, and I was prepared to give them a Bible study on the 2300 days, and the wife was gone, and the husband was there by himself. And I started in my Bible study, and he started to cry. He says, Pastor, what I really want to know is how to find salvation. He says, my wife has just left me. I don't think I'll ever see her again. I didn't know what to say. And I seriously thought, if you don't know how to tell people who want to have salvation how to have salvation, you need to find a different line of work besides being a preacher. How many agree with me? And I was very frustrated, and I continued being frustrated for four years. And uh, most pastors, I mean, the routine thing is you serve, at least back then, you'd serve four years as a, as a pastor, and then they'd either get rid of you or ordain you. Well, they didn't do either. And I wasn't doing well, but they didn't get rid of me. And before I was ordained, I had been in the ministry five years. And I remember of January of 1973, I was pastoring in Nebraska, and they had a meeting. They called all the Nebraska pastors to the meeting. And when we got there on Sunday, we ate supper, and then we went to a meeting at about 7 o'clock, and we were there till 10. And usually when you go to pastor's meeting, they will have a number of different speakers and and the different fellows will get up from the conference office and talk about their particular apartment and, and uh, give emphasis to that. But they didn't do that at this camp, that meeting. They had one fellow there, I'll never forget his name, was Eldon Walter. Anybody ever met Eldon Walter? He came to camp meeting here back in the 50s. And anyway, what he talked about on Sunday night from 7 o'clock to 10 o'clock is what the Bible and the writings of Ellen White say about eternal life. And then we, we, we started at 8 o'clock on Monday morning, except for lunch and supper. We stayed there from 8 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock. And all we talked about was the assurance of eternal life. We did that all day Monday, all day Tuesday, all day Wednesday, until noon on a Thursday. And I was just as excited as I was the first time I met Jesus 10 years before that. 
And I went home and I have been preaching about the assurance and the gift of eternal life ever since. And I recognize that Owen White says about that doctrine, it's dangerous. And if you look in 2 Peter chapter 3, in fact, let's go there right now. I want to point out the danger because some of the things that I preach, probably many of the things that I preach, are dangerous. But I don't feel as bad as perhaps I would because I recognize that Paul was accused by Peter of teaching things that are dangerous too. This is in 2 Peter chapter 3. And notice in verse 15. Oh, I'm going to start in verse, verse 13. Verse 13. 2 Peter 3.13. Hope you're there. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. How many are looking for that? Wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. I want to be that way. How many want to be that way? Verse 15, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. How many know that that's true? If God wasn't long-suffering, we'd all be lost. Amen? And I've said this before. I don't want to be treated the way I deserve. I want mercy. Amen? And that account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. How many have ever been reading the Bible and finds things hard to understand? So does Peter. How many believe that, that Paul was a man of God? That he was inspired of God to write the things he wrote? Did God, through the Holy Spirit, inspire Paul to say some things that are hard to understand? Yes, Did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to say some things that it says in the next phrase, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction? Did the Holy Spirit inspire Paul to write some things that some people will misunderstand them and cause them to be lost? Does the Holy Spirit ever do such things? You see, there are some truths. If you have a born-again heart and you look at those truths... It makes you want to serve God even more. If you don't have a born-again heart, you'll say, I don't have to do all those things. For instance, Titus 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saves us. By the way, I pastored in Madison over 20 years ago, and when people from Madison see me, one of the things they ask is, do you still preach on Titus 3? And I'm glad that they remember me for that. I've only preached on it here once. I think I should preach on it one more time very soon. How many agree with me? Does anybody remember Titus 3? Oh, my. It says in verse 8, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly. So I could preach on Titus 3 every Sabbath, one or two, and it would be biblical. But anyway, it says, I want you to affirm these things constantly so that those who have believed in God will be careful to maintain good works. And one of those faithful sayings that will cause those who believe in God to maintain good works is that you're not saved by your good works. And you see, if you read that and you come to the conclusion, oh, good, I don't have to do that, you're not understanding the gospel because it says those who have believed in God, when they know that they're not saved by their good works, it will make them want to do more of them. How many of I preach that here? All right. Verse 17, after the instruction, it says, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing you know these things before, beware, 
lest ye also, being led away by the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. And if you wonder what Peter's talking about there, people who st- fall from their steadfastness. What steadfastness? I look at uh, Daniel. Went to lion's den because he was steadfast. He would not stop praying to God. I look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They went into the fire. Why? Because they were steadfast. And the kind of religion that says you're saved by grace and you don't have to do good works that cause people to be less steadfast is a misinterpretation of the writings of Paul. Amen? And you see, I had this same misconcept about the doctrine of assurance of salvation. Then, as I said, I went to that meeting. We didn't do anything for five days but study the doctrine of salvation. Not only salvation, but assurance of salvation, which you have heard me preach. Now, when I preach that, especially to people who are like me, who have lived all their life as Adventists, thinking you can't know. In fact, there's a uh, quote, if I can get my notes out here and find my glasses I'll start quoting of what I know of it. Yep, I've missed up my notes. Here it is. All right. This is from Steps to Christ. It's on page uh, 54. And it says this. Satan is ready. How many know that Satan's always ready to put falsehoods in your mind? Here's what it says. Satan is ready to steal away the blessed assurances of God. And when I read that, I thought, I know what my mission in life is. If Satan is all the time ready to steal away, I'm always going to be ready to help Jesus put them back. Amen? Because I believe that, well, I've got to tell you a story. And forgive me if I told you before, but when I was called portering, I'm not a pushy person. Does anybody here think I am pushy? I may come across, I don't intend to be pushy. But anyway, I was called portering. And if people said they weren't interested, I believe they were telling the truth. And I, I never got rich call porting. God blessed me so that I was able to get by and not starve to death, but I never got rich. And I remember one time I was in Omaha, Nebraska, and I knew I had to get away from my car. Because when you have a bad experience, if you're a long way from your car, you might knock on some more doors. But if you have a bad experience and the car is just down the block, you're going to go sit in it and pout for a while and sulk. And so I was a long way from my car, and I had gone three days, and not only had I not made a sale, I hadn't even been inside of anybody's house because I had my case there, and they'd come to the door, and they'd look at me and look at the case, and they'd say they're not interested. And I thought, how do you know you're not interested? You don't even know what I'm doing. But I'm not pushy, and so I would just go on. How many of you know what it feels like to be someplace, and you know they don't want you there? It's hard. There have been a few times I have preached a sermon and I feel like they can hardly wait until I'm done. And you know what happens when I feel that? I get done real quick. Anyway, I took volume 9 out. How many knows what the picture is on volume 9 of the Bible stories? Picture of Jesus with children sitting in his lap. That's what I was doing. I was wanting to get children close to Jesus. So I took out volume 9 and I just held it in my hand. I'd go up and knock on the door. I didn't even have to talk. They'd look at me and they'd look at the book and say, we're not interested. And I thought, well, at least they know what I'm doing, and I'm saving my vocal cords for those who want. So anyway, third night, went up, knocked the door, and man came to the door, and he was tying his tie. I could tell he's in a hurry, and I thought, eh, this guy's in a hurry. I'm not. And he looked at me, looked at the book, and he says, are you selling those books? I says, I don't know, because I hadn't been selling any for the last few days. And he says, well, if you are, we want to buy a set of them. We have been looking for three years, because we want to get a set for our kids and we see him in the doctor's office, and we look at the back, and the cards are gone. Some call porter hadn't been, which was good for me. 
And uh, he says, we're late to the appointment. Will you come back tomorrow night? And what do you think I said? No, I can't come back tomorrow. <laughs> I said, I'll be back. I started to leave. He said, just a minute, I want your phone number. If you don't come back, I'm going to call you. I thought, mister, you don't know what's going on here. So I gave him my phone number. I started to leave again. He says, give me your address. So I gave him my address, and then he took a couple of minutes, and he drew a map from where my address was to where his address was, and he says, this is how you get here. And he says, and then if you don't show up, he says, I'm going to come over and park on your front step until you come, because I really want these books. So I went back the next night knowing I was going to make a sale. How many think that was valid of me to think that? And you know what? When I was in places where I didn't think they were interested, I couldn't give a good sales deal. Anybody like that? It's one I should have really given a good one. But if you know, you're, if you know, if you believe, here we go, if you believe ahead of time you're going to fail, all you want to do is get out of there. I gave those people the best sales talks on the Bible story books I've ever given anybody. Do you know why? Because I knew I was going to be successful. And that's why I had that text. I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. And you see, the way that we can do battle with Satan and be victorious is when we are rejoicing that Jesus Christ has paid my price. And there's a whole bunch of people that are going to go to heaven one day. And I know if I were to get treated fair, if I were to get treated the way I deserve, I'd never go, but I am not going to be treated that way. And I came up with a new way to say the same thing I've been saying but uh, I preached a funeral in Texas five weeks ago. How many know I was gone five weeks ago? And my, the text that I use is the text that we always use in a funeral sermon. Uh, First Timothy, or second, not Timothy, Thessalonians. You know the text. For the Lord himself shall descend from him with a shout, the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ shall rise. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds. And so will ever be at the Lord. And the last verse says, Wherefore comfort one another with these words. And I have often tried to comfort people those words. And I myself didn't get a lot of comfort from them. And they still cried. And I asked the question, why is it that we don't get the comfort from this text that, we, that God intended we get from it? And I'm guessing the reason is, is because we look at the person and think, yeah, they'll probably be there. But me, I got doubts about me. How many read that text and had the doubts? You know, I know me. I really don't know. I says, it's because we don't believe Jesus' words that we don't get the comfort from it that we should. I preached that sermon. I preached them the same thing I've been preaching. Anyway, what I said I want you to do that will give you help is you look at that text and you look at the other text where Jesus says, I'm going to come again and receive you unto myself. I want you to put your name in the you there so that you can walk around and say, a whole bunch of people are going to go to heaven one day soon. And I don't deserve it. But Jesus told me, like he told the thief, you're going to be one of the ones who go. Now, a text that's become a favorite of mine in just the last few months is the one where in Ephesians chapter 6, about verse 20, remember Paul talks about putting on the whole armor of God? How many have ever read that text? And one of the last things he said, just for the sword, he says, above all, taking the shield of faith, which which you can, you can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. What are the fiery darts of the wicked? Temptation. 
right? How many know? Fiery darts, the wickedest temptation. Everything that Satan has ever wanted to do since he deceived himself and then deceived angels is get people to do contrary to the will of God. And the way he gets them to do it is he puts thoughts in their mind. He puts thoughts in the mind of Adam and Eve. And he put it in the angels and he had it in his own thoughts. And how many know he puts thoughts in your minds? And a temptation is a thought. Wouldn't that be fun? Wouldn't that taste good? I don't know what all... But you know he puts thoughts in your minds. Well, God has given, has thoughts too. And the shield of faith. Faith is... How many know what... Ellen White's best definition of faith I've ever read. I've used it on you. I've said it to you Sabbath after Sabbath. I want you to know it. Here's what she said. I've got it written down, but it's in Selected Messages, Volume 1, somewhere between 391 and 393. Read it all. But the sentence says, if you believe that God will save other people, but you don't believe he'll save you. In other words, if you read that promise, he's going to come again and take a bunch of people, and you believe, yeah, that's true. I believe Jesus is coming soon. I believe a whole bunch of people is coming but I don't know if it's, I'm going to be one of them. She says, if you believe that God's going to save other people, but you don't believe he's going to save you, you do not have genuine faith. And that is why we can't put out all the fiery darts the wicked, because the one thought that we need that will give gratitude and love to God more than any other is when he says to you what he says to the thief, you're going to be with me in paradise. Is that a good promise? Now, I have been preaching this message ever since 1973, January. And I remember uh, it was February, just a month after I'd had this. It was Valentine's Day, and we had been to a wedding that day. And it was in Valentine, Nebraska, which is about as far north as Wisconsin. And there'd been a lot of snow, and people were out fishing on the lakes, because after the wedding, we went for a drive through the country, and around Valentine, there's a lot of lakes. And it was 70 degrees on February the 14th. And so the water, the, the ice was probably that thick. It had been a cold winter. And the water on top of the ice had melted. And here was people out standing on the lake, looking like they were walking on water, fishing. Well, we went home. And uh, our oldest daughter was just two months old then, like a few days. Anyway, we got out. And the neighbor had a sister who was a pre-med, junior pre-med student at a school about 100 miles away over in Shadron, Nebraska. And she was home visiting that day because they were having a birthday party. And so we pulled up, and, and it was a nice day, so the neighbors were out in the yard. And as we got out, she headed over. She said, I hear you have a new baby. I want to see your new baby. And I thought, I was tired. Remember, I get tired after I preached, and I'd been, a, anyway, been to that wedding and so I thought, well, I'll just let her talk down when she doesn't want to see me. So I went on the house. And apparently the baby needed changed, and Alma had invited this lady in. And I saw them coming up the walk, and I tried to escape down to the bedroom so I could lay down. I was going to sit in the recliner, but I thought, I'm no pastor's a little bit shy anyway. Oh, she didn't come see me. But before I was able to get out of the living room, they were already in there, and Alma says, I'm going to go change the baby. And I was left in the living room with this young lady that I did not know. But I'm a preacher, and I have to be nice to people, even if I don't feel like it, which is a good thing. Amen? Anyway, I tried to make conversation. I says, isn't it a nice day? <laughs> Comment about the weather, and I says, we have been to a wedding today. And she said, I don't like weddings. Oh, I said, how come? She says, well, in the last three years, I have been in the wedding of two of my friends, one of them's already divorced, and the other ones are miserable. They'll probably get divorced. She said, I don't like weddings. And I felt the Holy Spirit saying, here's an opportunity. 
So I says, do you know why there's so many unhappy marriages? She wanted to know. She said, why? So I gave her my testimony about, I says, everybody's looking for happiness in the wrong place, and human beings don't have it to give. The only place you can find happiness is in God. And I showed her that text, the joy of the Lord's my strength. And I showed her the text, and thy presence is fullness of joy. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. I says, everybody's looking for the fruit of the Spirit, and they're looking for it in the wrong place. Some of them are looking at the bottom of a beer bottle, and some of them are looking at the money. Some of them are looking at immorality. But I says, the only place you can find real happiness is when you find Jesus. And I said, would you like to know how to find Jesus? She says, yes, I would. We spent the next two and a half hours going through the Bible and has shown her what I had just found a, a month before that you can have eternal life. The phone rang about an hour into the Bible study. And it was the neighbors. We're about to cut the cake, they said. On They wanted to talk to her. We're about to cut the cake. She says, you go ahead. I'll come over later. I want to hear what this guy has to say. We talked another hour and a half, and the phone rang. And uh, the parents of the neighbor and this girl, his brother lived next door, says, you need to come now. We're going home. She says, you go ahead. I'll walk home. It was a couple miles. She says, I want, to hear, I want to hear the rest of this, what this guy said. She didn't want to hear Bob Stauffer, but she was listening to the, verse, the voice of God. And I was excited. I remember soon after that, in summer of 73, we were accepted a call and went to Wyoming. I preached it out there. And how many have heard the story about the lady who couldn't stop smoking? How many have heard that story? I mean, it's after 12 o'clock. Come on, everybody raise your hands so I don't have to tell it again. There you go. But anyway... I'll just tell you the short part of it. She couldn't quit smoking. I gave her the Bible study. I led her to the assurance of eternal life in Jesus. And I says, now after this, every time you're tempted to smoke, rather than using your willpower to try not to smoke, I want you to use your willpower to start thanking Jesus that he has saved you. And she says, how can I believe that Jesus has saved me when I can't quit smoking? And I said, how will you ever quit smoking if you don't believe that Jesus saves you? You with me? And so that's what she started doing, and she quit smoking. I checked up on her a year later because she had left our church because she found happiness now and she knew she could go back and get along with her husband, which she had left. And 15 years later, I went back to the church where she was. She wasn't there anymore, but I asked the members, did Pat ever go back smoking? No. And there were a number of people there that Pat Pat had helped quit smoking by leading them to Jesus. I had another lady who uh, had grown up Adventist and gotten real discouraged and made some mistakes and left the church and had a baby out of wedlock and then had married the alcoholic man that had, was the father of the baby. And she was so discouraged. She was just, just had it up to here with the church and everything else. And I got to talking to her one day and she started cursing at me and cursing at God. And before it was over, I was able to lead her to Jesus and before she went home, she was rejoicing. She had eternal life. And a year later, she stopped by her house because she says, I want to learn to give that Bible study. A year later, she stopped by the house all excited. She says, I just led somebody to Jesus and you weren't there to help me. Just Jesus and me did it. She loved it. How many know I love preaching about this? I told the story about the lady couldn't quit smoking. I think I mentioned this to you when I was in the church in Texas. And... Uh, I had a guy come up a week later, and he says, you know that story you told about a lady couldn't stop smoking? You know, about rejoicing you have eternal life will give you strength. The joy of the Lord's my strength. I says, yeah. He says, I've been chewing tobacco for 20 years since I was a little boy. They do that in Texas, the hillbillies. Hope they don't hear this down there, but I used to live down in all Anyway, he says, I didn't think I could ever overcome. I've done everything that I'm supposed to do, and I can't overcome. 
But he says, I've been doing what you told that lady to do, and I haven't chewed tobacco for a week, and I know I'm, I have the victory. I had another young man in his 30s came to me. And he says, you know that story you told about the lady couldn't quit smoking? I says, yeah. He says, I've been doing what you told her, rejoicing that God has given me the gift of eternal life. He says, I've been addicted for 20 years to pornography. And I've taken a class in addiction. And, and in this class, they said, pornography is worst addiction that you can get. Worse than drugs, worse than anything. It's the hardest to overcome. He says, I didn't think I could ever overcome. And he's sure I was going to be lost. But I started doing what you told that lady to do. Rejoice in salvation. And he says, every time I'm tempted to look at that stuff, I start thanking Jesus for having saved me. And she says, God has give, he said, God has given me the victory over that. How many of you know I like to preach this? I especially like to preach it to people who haven't heard it. And a year ago at this time, I was just leaving Bismarck, North Dakota. And I had preached the same message there that I preached to you today that I preached them. And they, bless their hearts, felt about me the same way that you feel. They wanted me to stay there and keep preaching, and I felt I have preached it. And now I think God wants me to go someplace else. And six weeks later, Elder Edge called me and asked me to come here. And uh, I have preached here for ten months. I didn't know what God wanted me to do, but you folks have been so sweet and so nice. And you said, we want you to be our permanent pastor. And I, when I left Bismarck, I didn't know. I, I said, I, I want to keep preaching someplace, but I felt like God wanted me to leave. And then uh, I came here. And when the conference and you folks asked me to stay, I didn't have a call. And so I said I would. And you were so sweet. In fact, I think I know now how uh, the angel and John in What's the text? Revelation 19.10 where John about worships the angel and the angel's horrified. says, don't do that. Uh, the way you have reacted to the message, you have confused the message with the messenger. The messenger is not the message. Jesus is the message. Salvation is the message. And uh, you have been saying things about me that I know are not true just because you hear the message and you love the message. But anyway, when we were in Texas... A few weeks ago, I preached the same thing as I already told you. And uh, there was a relative there from another church came by and she said, boy, we'd love to have you preach that in our church. And I thought, well, I, I can't. I'm not retired anymore. A few weeks later, I got a call from the Texas conference. It says they want you down here. So I have pastored the Texas conference before. It's a big conference, 42,000 church members. And that's only in the two-thirds east. The, the third west of Texas is another conference. And uh, when we went down there before, from the time they first contacted us until we finally got the call was six weeks because the, 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 the wheels of organization in a big conference move very slowly. And my wife and I wanted to know, dear God, do you want me to go down and tell the same thing in Texas that I've told here. I says, if you want us to go, make the wheels move faster. Because if we don't hear from them within a week, we're going to take it as a sign we're not supposed to go. We made that decision. 
in an hour, they called, says, we really want you to come to Texas. My wife has been crying because we have learned to love you. She cried when we left Bismarck, North Dakota. But you have, you'll notice that in my sermons, I'm starting to repeat myself. And there's a reason for that is because I don't have a burden to preach anything else. And the reason I don't have a burden to preach anything else is because of the fact that there's so many Adventists who don't know that. So many Adventists who think it's a good thing to have some, a little bit of anxiety. And if you're not converted, anxiety is a good thing. But another thing that I have in my notes, which I cannot find. Well, maybe I'm not, maybe we're supposed to go eat lunch. But I've already read you the one where it says Satan is constantly seeking to steal away the blessed assurances of Jesus. And I remember when it came time for me to retire two and a half years ago, I thought, I don't want to quit preaching. But I had worked with an evangelist. He had held two series of meetings in my church in Texas. And uh, when I, and he found out I was retiring, he says, I think you ought to take your message of assurance and preach in as many churches as you can. And God led us to buy a big pickup that would pull a fifth wheel that we have lived in most of the time except here. And uh, I don't even think my wife's in the room here today because she knew I was going to say this. And it's hard. But uh, down in my heart, I really feel that what I preached in Bismarck, God wanted me to come here and preach it. And now I think he wants me to go someplace else and preach the same thing. We love you. Since we first heard this and you have been coming to us and say, we're so glad you're staying. If I hadn't seemed gracious, it's because I feel so guilty. Because we knew this was in the works. And we didn't want to go. And we said, I've already told you, Lord, if you want us to go, make the machinery down in Texas work faster. And within an hour after we asked God that, they called. So what our plans are right now, as I've already said, we're going to go baptize our grandchildren. Then we're going to come back and the first Sabbath in December. We're going to have a baptism. And then the second Sabbath in December, I'm supposed to be preaching in a town in Texas that should be pronounced Elgin, like Elgin, Illinois, but they call it Elgin. It's about 15 miles east of the capital city of Austin. So pray for us. Uh, I've got some good news for you. Jesus has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. So that you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, and I will not be afraid of what man shall do to me. And I encourage you to read Steps to Christ. There's a chapter in Steps to Christ about the Holy Spirit. And you see, a a person may leave. And Jesus, when he was here, his bodily form left them. But he says, I'm going to leave you, but the Holy Spirit will be in you. And that's the important thing. Because it says in Steps to Christ... Through the agency of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was actually closer to the disciples when he went back to heaven than when he was here physically with them. This is what God wants to be, closer to you than if he was actually physically with you. 
Because it says all that Jesus was to the early disciples, he longs to be to God's people today. And I have discovered and I've been preaching to you how to bring yourself into the presence of God. Because it says in Psalms 100, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Then down in verse 4 it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. You've heard me preach on that too. And I used to think that was protocol. When you approach God, you should approach God say, thank you, thank you, thank you. But that's not protocol. Giving thanks to God is how you bring yourself into his presence. You start thanking him not just for, you know, the nice day, as important as that is, or the good health or the good meal. He wants you to thank him and say, you promised the thief that he was going to go to heaven, and you've promised to me too. And give glory to God for the gift of salvation. And every time you're tempted on whatever you're tempted on, you use your willpower to say, Jesus Christ, by his blood, has offered me the gift of salvation. I've accepted it. And when he comes, a whole bunch of people are going to go. I'm going to be one of the ones that go with him. You not only have the right to believe that if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, you cannot have victory over sin unless you put your mind on that. And that's how you keep from being tempted. Let's bow our heads. Dear Jesus in heaven, there's a song in our hymnal that says, when we part, it gives us inward pain. But you've promised you'll never leave us nor forsake us. And our source of joy comes from you. In thy presence is fullness of joy. It's my prayer that we all live in the presence of Jesus constantly. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Jesus, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. I thank you that when we read the Bible and when we read the promises and Satan whispers and says, you're not worthy, we can agree with him. But we can say Jesus was worthy and he suffered for my sins so that he could give to me his righteousness, which I have accepted. And when Satan comes to remind us of our past, Help us to remind him of our future and of his future. I ask that we'll always keep these things in mind. In Jesus' name, amen.